today on Fellowship in the Word, Pastor Bill Gebhardt challenges you to become a fully functioning follower of Jesus Christ. The almighty, infinite God says, I got a plan to save the world, it's you. And somehow we don't really respond as well as we should here. I think that the church in America is still vibrant and strong, but we are experiencing what John Dickerson calls in his book, The Great Evangelical Recession. Our country is growing and our church is diminishing. Hmm. And the question is, what is really going on? Well, I think an observation might be that we're not winning the culture because in fact, the culture is winning us. That has really hurt us. And so we look a lot more like the culture then the culture looks like us. Thank you for joining us today on this edition of Fellowship in the Word with Pastor Bill Gephardt. Fellowship in the Word is the radio ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, located in Metairie, Louisiana. Let's join Pastor Bill Gephardt now as once again he shows us how God's Word meets our world. Every time someone like Pablo and Theo Ramirez come, I'm always reminded of the Great Commission. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo or behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Jesus commissioned the church as make disciples. By going, by baptizing, that means leading them to a saving knowledge of Christ or the gospel. And by teaching them, that's how you make a disciple. Mark 16 says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. The mission of our church or every church has to be, can we impact the whole world? And people like Pablo certainly help us impact in a place like Argentina. But sometimes... I think that we here in the United States conveniently forget that that includes America. We end up viewing people like a missionary as someone very, very special, which we're not. But if you would see a mission map in heaven, your name's on it and your pin's on it. This is where you live. This is the family you're in. This is the job you have. In other words, you represent God where you are. It's an amazing thing that Almighty God can do anything And when you think of all the things that happen to us that we call our faith or our Christianity, everything that you and I do on earth as a Christian, we will do infinitely better at in heaven. Worship would be much greater. Love will be much stronger. Everything will be better except one thing. You don't win the lost in heaven. The chance to win the lost is now, right here. That's it. And we're God's plan. The almighty, infinite God says, I got a plan to save the world. It's you. And somehow we don't really respond as well as we should here. I think that the church in America is still vibrant and strong, but we are experiencing what John Dickerson calls in his book, The Great Evangelical Recession. Our country is growing and our church is diminishing. And the question is, what is really going on? Well, I think an observation might be that we're not winning the culture because, in fact, the culture is winning us. That has really hurt us. And so we look a lot more like the culture than the culture looks like us. But I believe there are three reasons why we're not impacting America to the degree that we ought to be. The first reason, I believe, is the cultural myths 
that exist about the impact of the gospel. One of the prevailing views of our culture is that all religions are exactly the same. If you're logical and you think about that, that would mean then that if all religions are exactly the same, then no religion is true. You see, they're all false. If they're all exactly the same, then they're all false. The second virtue, which is really big in our country, is tolerance. Our country calls it its highest virtue, and it really applauds itself and pats itself on the back that it is so tolerant, but not really. That's not true. Yes, it is a tolerant of any lifestyle possible. It is tolerant of every form of sexual immorality that exists. But according to D.A. Carson in his book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, a great book, he said the sad reality is that this new contemporary tolerance is intrinsically intolerant. It is blind to its own shortcomings because it erroneously thinks it holds high moral ground. It cannot be questioned because it has become part of the West's plausible structure. You see, we're tolerant of everything except anyone who believes that something is true. Anyone who believes in an absolute truth, our culture is intolerant of those people. And unfortunately, that's us. I love what C.J. Chesterton said. He said, tolerance is the virtue of a man who has no conviction. Another thing about our country, we believe in philosophical and theological pluralism. All thought systems are exactly equal. No thought system is superior. There's all kinds of avenues and ways in which this happens. Uh, you'll hear this all the time. All roads lead to heaven. No matter what you believe, you're going there. If there is a heaven, everyone goes. That's pluralism. And a Christian's idea of it is no better than anybody else's idea of it. And it's based on this fact that they believe wholeheartedly there is no such thing as absolute truth, except what they just said. You see how that works? Wait, if there's no such thing as it, then what you just said can't be true. No, no, this is true, but everything you believe is false. Now, that's all part of the culture in which we live in, this pluralistic culture. There's no question in my mind. It creates a challenge. But here's my answer to that. So what? When has the gospel of Jesus Christ not been challenged by culture in 2,000 years? It's always been. And somehow we act like, no, oh, what do you do now? The fastest growing group of believers apparently in the world right now are in China. They've been growing exponentially. The church is illegal in China. The government is completely atheistic. Uh, they arrest and, and jail pastors when they find them. I mean, this is as anti-Christian a culture as one could exist, and the church is growing there exponentially. And then you take Iran. So many Iranians have come to Jesus Christ in the last 10 years. And when you read their testimony, it's an interesting testimony an Iranian will say, I found Jesus Christ, I found the answer, I want to share him with everybody, and I know when I do, I won't live more than one to three years. I will be killed, but I'm sharing. Hmm. South America, just as Pablo said, enormously religious, Roman continent, just like our culture here, and yet the church is growing. Africa is growing. They have centuries of animism. They're growing. But the place that the church is not growing, and it's not growing in Europe at all, but it's also not growing in the United States. See, why is that? I don't think it's the culture. I think it's us. I think we're the reason. Uh, two things I want to say about that. Um, Tim Keller says that evangelism is the most basic and radical ministry possible to a human being. This is not true because the spiritual is more important than the physical, but because the eternal is much more important than the temporal. God has placed this in our hands. And we're extremely timid about it in our country. Evangelism is an act of giving verbal witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. 
But listen to this part. Confident that its power does not fluctuate with the strengths or weaknesses of the messengers. If there is a consistent factor that I have heard in all these years of ministry here, it's that. I can't tell you how many people in, in this church have said to me, I'd really like to talk to people about Christ, and I'd really like to evangelize, but I don't think I can. I'm not, I'm not a good apologist. They're going to start asking me questions, and I won't know what to answer. It's like I don't have any confidence to do this. I don't think I could close the deal. It's categorically wrong. The gospel saving someone has nothing to do with the messenger. Not ever. It's a God thing. That's the way this message works. The fellow who led me to Christ talked to me for a year, and everything that he said I made fun of because I thought the whole idea that somebody 2,000 years ago died on a Roman cross, and if I put my faith in him, I'm, everything's good between me and God. I thought that was stupid. I wouldn't believe it. Now, it's not new. Paul said to the Greeks, the gospel's foolishness. To the Jews, the religious crowd, it's a stumbling block. So if you witness to a religious person, what do they say over and over again? It's too easy. It's too easy. It's too easy. I got to do this. I got to do this. But the gospel has always been like that. The expectation is it's foolishness or it's a stumbling block. It's too easy. But our presentation of the gospel is really a simple thing. Open your Bible to Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. It says, so when they had come together, this is right before Jesus ascends, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? They want that Davidic Messianic kingdom to start. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Then he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Jesus says two things happen here. The first thing that happens, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be a witness. Now understand, being a witness has got to be one of the easiest things a human being can be. It's so much easier. I mean, think of all the other stuff that's hard. I mean, think if you took certain tests in that, how many of them are difficult. Oh, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the But a witness, how much easier can it be to a witness? We go into a courtroom and he says, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? About what? What you witnessed. Jesus said, you're my witnesses. Just tell people about me. You see, whatever Christ means to you or however you came to Christ, just tell people. Just tell them. Witness. You see, it sounds so easy. But by the way, if you're still uncomfortable, notice what he also said. And you will receive power, dunamis. We get the word dynamite from that. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You don't even have to do this in your own strength. God says, I'll give you the power for you to be a witness. And yet many of us never witnessed anyone. You see, many of us never witnessed anyone. And we keep saying in that sense, well, I don't know. You know, I just don't think that I, I can do it very well. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8 for a moment. And this is Philip meeting the Ethiopian eunuch. The context occurs in verse 29. It said, the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. He's in a chariot heading back to Egypt. And it says, and Philip ran up and heard him reading from Isaiah the prophet. Now, why would an Ethiopian eunuch be reading Isaiah? God set this up. This is a setup. He's reading Isaiah. And Philip ran up and heard him reading and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, uh, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading is this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, as a lamb before its shear is silent. He does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, who's this guy talking about? 
Hmm. Philip opened his mouth and began teaching from the scripture. He preached Jesus to him. He said, this is Jesus. Now watch the response. And they went along the road and came to the water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Wow. I mean, this is like Philip didn't even know he's going to meet a eunuch. You'd never dream an Ethiopian eunuch could be reading Isaiah. Now he wants to do it. Philip tells him what he knows, a little bit about it, and he said, I want to get baptized right now. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Done. You see, it's a God thing. You see, that man that witnessed to me that I kept everything he said was foolishness, after a long period of time, he finally told me one time, I won't talk to you anymore. Because I was a philosophical hypocrite, he said. You say you want truth, but you really don't. So I'm done. I said, okay. So I left his lab, walked across our company grounds, walked into my lab, walked over to my desk, got down on my knees and prayed to receive Christ. How do you explain that? The person said, I won't talk to you anymore. We're done. Because it's a God thing. It's not dependent on my slickness. It's only dependent on God. That's the way this whole thing works. You see, I think often the thing we lack is, go with me to Acts 4 for a moment, and let's look at that, Acts 4.19. I think the thing that we're lacking in our country when it comes to sharing the gospel is we don't have the courage. Peter and John had done a miracle, healed someone, and the Jewish leaders got them, and basically, because they're a little bit nervous, said, you've got to stop that. They knew what Jesus had done to their country. Now they say these followers of Jesus are going to do the same thing. So we're telling you no more. Now understand something. Members of the Sanhedrin believed they had absolute total authority over any Jew. So when you tell Jews, stop it, Jews, stop it. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. Now, let me clarify this. Should we listen to you or should we listen to God? Tell me that. You see how it's pretty courageous to say. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard, what we have witnessed. We're going to talk. What's it take to do that? Remember, the Sanhedrin got Christ crucified. You see, that's all right. I have courage. And he says then, after that, he says, when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old with whom the miracle of the healing had taken place. They just went right back out and continued to do it. The last verse in the section 31, and when they had prayed, he said, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. They were emboldened by this. We're not threatened by this. You see, it takes a certain amount of courage to do this. You know what happens in China when a pastor gets out of jail? He goes right back to sharing Christ with the unsaved and pastoring his church. What's it take to do that? It takes courage. Could you imagine coming to Christ in a Muslim country like Iran and knowing now your life's going to be one to three years long and you're going to be martyred? And their view is, that's okay. I'm going to tell as many as I can about Jesus. They have all this courage. What bothers us? I mean, we'd like to do it, but people might not like us. You see, I don't know if I want to say that because people might not like me. Well, Jesus said the world will hate you because it first hated me. You're in good company. You see, in each culture, it takes a certain amount of courage. We talk about the Reformation, but there were priests like John Huss, who long before the Reformation stood up for Jesus Christ, and they burned him at the stake. That takes courage. Martin Luther, that takes courage. William Tyndall, they not only killed him, they took all his bones, and then they ground them all up, and they put them on ships and put them in different parts of the world to throw them into the ocean so he couldn't be resurrected. But that's courage. See, we're not threatened that way. What is it that's holding us back? Why don't we have that kind of courage? We have to be able to speak 
the truth of the gospel. The third reason is this. We have to have the works and deeds in our life that show we're a child of God. And I hate to say this, we don't. You see, that becomes such an important part of this. Dwayne Litvin says this. He said, we simply cannot not communicate. Our nonverbal messages give us away. Our deeds are constantly working together with our verbal message, rendering it more or less credible. He said, they form the inevitable context with which our verbal message is heard. John Poulton said, and I love this, Christians need to look like what they talk about. We don't. You can take anything and measure the stats. You see our divorce rate, see the unsaved divorce rate. Our amount of abuse, their amount of it. It's almost like we're just like them. You see, we've lost the context of the message. And that is hard for us to understand. It's not just our words. Aristotle, brilliant philosopher of Greek, one of the greatest thinkers ever, considering it was 350 BC when he was doing it, talked about how do you persuade people? And he said it takes three things. It takes logos, it takes pathos, it takes ethos. Now, logos, he said, is the logic of your argument. These are all taught, by the way, in homiletical courses now at seminary, where I was at. Do you have logos? Do you have pathos? Do you have ethos? Now, in our seminary, we had lots of logos. You see, we could take a text apart. We knew Greek and Hebrew. We could parse the verbs. We could give you historical context. We know the logos. But what we ended up finding out is a lot of our graduates didn't have any pathos at all. They had no conviction emotionally for what they were saying. No, you have to have pathos. But what Aristotle said more importantly, those two are important, but by a mile, the most important thing is ethos. We get the word ethic from it. You have to have character. You see, if you don't have character, it's very hard to convince somebody or persuade them. Aristotle said, we believe good men much more fully and more readily than others. Isn't that true? On the other side of that same coin, this is an election year. So a lot of politicians will be talking. And isn't it wonderful that you believe them all? Isn't that a wonderful thing? Because of their character. You don't, do you? Why? There's no character. Why would I believe this? So that's why today I can't set up my character and persuade you with a good logical argument that I really believe. In order to get elected today, I just want to tell you something. I'm not that good, but I'm better than the guy I'm running against. And they convince you that that guy's even worse than this guy, so I'll vote for that guy. See, that's not real persuasion. Jesus Christ agreed with this fully. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, in verse 13. Jesus said, and he's talking to us, believers, you're the salt of the earth. Wow, salt preserves the earth? You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You see, Jesus said you're the salt of the earth, but if you're not salty, you're worthless. You see, you don't have anything to back it up. Now watch, it gets clearer. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to the whole house. He says, you're the light of the world. He said, but a city on a hill that has lights at night, you can't miss it. You see it. He said, when you go into a house and someone has a lamp, could you imagine going in there and say, I can't see anything. It's dark in here. Do you have a lamp? They go, oh, yeah, I got one. It's under this basket. You see, you don't put a lamp under the basket. But maybe we have, because notice what he says then. Verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We should live like the children of God. We should live reflecting the blessings God has put upon us. We should live in such a way that other people say they live differently. They act differently. They talk differently. Everything about it. Pablo was talking about a youth camp. And parents came and said, my son doesn't steal anymore. My daughter doesn't swear anymore. 
They're acting differently, and parents then want to know. That's why Peter wrote, you can give an account now for the hope that's in you. Why are you different? Is that what our culture is asking us? Because I don't think our light's shining. You see, I don't think it works that way. Look to John 13 with me for one moment. This is inside the house. Notice what he says in 34 and 35 to us. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you have love for one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. What's Jesus saying? All unsaved men will know who we are because of the way we love each other. Is that what the people out there think about us? Wow, those Christians, they just love each other. You see, that's a problem for us, isn't it? Where our light's not shining. We're not that salty. We're not following letting our light shine. By the way, does that really work? Let me give you a quote that I thought was amazing to me. The early church was remarkable, not because of what it said. I believe their lifestyle won the Roman Empire. And I want to give you the quote of an interesting person. His, the emperor, Hadrian, A.D. 125. Hadrian's an emperor of Rome. Now understand what that means. He is God. Okay, he is deity. You need to worship me. I'm the emperor of Rome. I am Caesar. Hadrian said this about Christians in that day. They do not worship strange gods, and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not among them. And they love one another. And from windows, he said, they do not turn away their esteem. He said, they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not, without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they did not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from this world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him and set him free from the jail. And if there is among them any who is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, then they fast for two or three days in order to supply for the needy and hungry of their flock. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with so much care, living justly and soberly as their Lord and God commanded them. That's an emperor said that. He noticed how different they were. Does the culture we live in notice how different we are? So my conclusion is, yes, the culture is becoming more and more anti-Christian. It's been like that for 2,000 years. Virtually all cultures are anti-Christian. Even the American culture was much more into churchianity than Christianity in its history. But we have relished the great opportunity we've had in America to not be persecuted by the culture. But those days are changing. And it's okay because that's the way it's all over the world and that's the way it's always been. Secondly, many of us never share the gospel with anyone. We make an excuse. We're not equipped to do so. But see, the gospel's not about us. It's about him. And his Holy Spirit will have a miraculous power in bringing it to fruition. And thirdly, we don't look like what we're talking about. We don't have the character to be persuasive. Our lives are to be an illustration of the many blessings that's happened to us as a born-again person in the family of God. The church's mission worldwide is simple. Make disciples, whether it's in America or, as Pablo said, in Argentina. That mission is verbal and nonverbal. Our words and our deeds are complementary to each other. We need to be engaged in this, just like Pablo and Fio are. You see, they are our missionaries in Argentina, and you are God's missionaries right here in New Orleans. See, the expectations are the same.
You've been listening to Pastor Bill Gephardt on the radio ministry of Fellowship in the Word. If you ever miss one of our broadcasts, or maybe you would just like to listen to the message one more time, remember that you can go to a great website called oneplace.com. That's oneplace.com, and you can listen to Fellowship in the Word online. At that website, you will find not only today's broadcast, but also many of our previous audio programs as well. At Fellowship in the Word, we are thankful for those who financially support our ministry and make this broadcast possible. We ask all of our listeners to prayerfully consider how you might help this radio ministry continue its broadcast on this radio station by supporting us monthly or with just a one-time gift. Support for our ministry can be sent to Fellowship in the Word, 4600 Clearview Parkway, Metairie, Louisiana, 7006. If you would be interested in hearing today's message in its original format, that is, as a sermon that Pastor Bill delivered during a Sunday morning service at Fellowship Bible Church, then you should visit our website, fbcnola.org. That's f-b-c-n-o-l-a dot o-r-g. At our website, you will find hundreds of Pastor Bill's sermons. You can browse through our sermon archives to find the sermon series you are looking for, or you can search by title. Once you find the message you are looking for, you can listen online, or if you prefer, you can download the sermon and listen at your own convenience. And remember, you can do all of this absolutely free of charge. Once again, our website is fbcnola.org. For Pastor Bill Gebhardt, I'm Jason Gebhardt, thanking you for listening to Fellowship in the Word.